particularly um, struck with the idea of looking at the experiences in the produce yards. Yeah, Pittsburgh, okay. Working at Fantastic. Produce yards, and since I'm such a Pittsburgh kid. Yeah. And, um, and then I saw yesterday in the paper, there was a big write-up about the produce yards. Was there? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's really uh, very um, interesting in two ways because uh, rehabilitation of the strip, strip district produce terminal nearing its end. And my wife and I were driving through Smallman Street last week, and I said to her, oh, my God, look at this, how beautiful, you know, it's starting to become. Yeah, actually, um, Slow from the gym just told, we just had this conversation about how nice it's becoming down there, and I haven't been down there in so long. Now, I don't know if you've ever been down this to uh, Charleston, West, uh, uh, South, South Carolina. Carolina. I have, yeah. Okay, so, you know, the, the historic district down in Charleston, yeah. and they have a big market down there. Now, sure. I don't know that this is going to be quite that. Hey, it might be. But um, when I saw that, I started to kind of blend in with, with those two things. And since, um, of course, I've got my book, and I've got short stories. But two of the short stories, of course, are around the produce yards. Yeah, those are great. And thank you. I read those. And I, I read this story in the paper, and I started thinking to myself, you know, the world goes down to the, to, uh, the uh, produce yards on weekends yeah. from Pittsburgh. And they walk around in there, you know, they have all the different shops and whatnot, and sure. the street uh, um, vendors that are down there. And uh, the idea that when I was down there working as a college kid, it was the strip district. That was not where anybody, no one went to the strip district unless you were down there to um, buy for a store wholesale in some form or another. That was it? That was really what it was. So were there bars or anything like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, there were okay. bars down there. Um, there were there were sandwich stores down there. There was like a Roland's and places like that. Um, the famous one's Permanis, right? That, well, Permanis—that's the original. That's the original Permanis. Now, I, when I was down there, I um, I never went to Permanis to have a sandwich there at that time that I can remember. Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, Permanis stayed open really late. Well, when sure. Permanis was closing was probably when I was coming down to start work. Gotcha. Because it was going down in the middle of the night. Right. And then by the time I left, it was twelve o'clock in the afternoon, and so. Permanis, you know, was probably opening for lunch, but I was exhausted. I was going back home. But most of the stores that were down there um, were wholesale produce places. Okay. And they were humming at, at night, and so you had um, watermelon people. You had banana people, uh, like Rabino's Bananas mm -hmm. was uh, on the corner right near where I was. There was Weisberg Produce, Klein's. And Klein Produce, they were two different things. Klein's Tomatoes, Klein's Produce. And um, and then there was Consumer Produce, which is where the, that where that story, where that story is taking place. That was a lot of consumer produce, consumers produce, and that was also uh, where um, uh, the place that I worked for ultimately moved into that st strip, but I was already gone from there at that particular point in time. Okay. So that was later on when, when they actually moved from the original place that I was working. But that, going to work down there and being a part of all that was a very unusual circumstance because I was a college kid. It's my first year out of college and I was looking for a job. I had been a tuxedo rental guy and I worked in East Liberty and then wasn't, it wasn't enough money because it was uh, 1973 or so and 74. And um, at that time, as you saw in one of the stories, the minimum wage was really low. It was like $2 and some odd cents an hour. Yeah. Right? And yeah. these guys, they were, they were going to be paying like 6 bucks an hour. Okay. And it's big time. So it was big time. And I was supposed to go back and work at this tuxedo place, but I thought, I'm going to go down to the produce yards and I'm going to get a job down there. So I, I went down in the, it was probably mid, 
mid-morning, and I walked into this place that I ended up working, Mai's, and uh, I had on really nice clothes. And so I said to the guy, you know, I'd like to get a job here, you know, like, and he's like, looks at me, and he, he's like, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a place for you, you know, this yeah. is not really where you should be working. So I go home and I tell my brother, who's older than me, he's four years older than me, I tell him the story. He says, well, hell yeah, you know, nobody's going to hire you looking like that. you got to put on blue jeans and a t-shirt, ripped t-shirt, work boots, and go down there and show them you can can work. Because I I used to be a weightlifter back then, so I had a pretty good physique on me for a little guy. So so I, thank you. So I go down there now with with blue jeans on and everything, and he hires me, and he tells me, you know, we're going to pay you six bucks an hour or so. So I go home, I tell my brother, I got this job, it's six bucks an hour. And it's down on Penn Avenue. But I have to work in the middle of the night. I have to be down there like three, four o'clock in the morning. So he says, well, hell, I'm getting a job down there because he was pumping gas. And uh, so he goes down and he gets a job uh, working at Consumer Produce. And he's going to unload um, box... Uh, box cars, train train loads of box cars. Yeah. He was a pretty he's a pretty good shape too. He's much yeah, bigger yeah. than me, but he was in really good shape. So we're going to drive down together in the middle of the night to go work there. And the first night that we're going, we had uh, he had got he had helped me get a car. It was a little Chevelle, and uh, he had bought it. He got it from a friend of his. He bought it from a friend of his. And he, he redid the Chevelle, and it was, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. We get up, we get in this Chevelle. We're driving down Stanton Avenue to get to Butler Street. We're going past the Allegheny uh, County Cemetery, and the brakes went out on this car. And we were careening, literally, careening down the street. First, This is our first day of work. <laughs> our first day of work. Dude, we're careening sucks. down this street. He says to me, I don't have any brakes. And it's picking up speed, and we go flying through this intersection, and he maneuvers the car so that he hits the side of the uh, curb, and he slows the car down. And we get out, and there we are. It's the middle of the freaking night. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Luckily, it was 3 in the morning, right? And, and yeah, because we would have smashed somebody. And yeah. we're like, okay, we're supposed to be at work here. you know. <laughs> so yeah. We grabbed a cab. We find a cab. Three o'clock in the morning, and got dropped off in the produce yards. That was our first. That was the. So he went to his place. I went to mine, and uh, and uh, and I went to work in the produce yards. Of course, I worked there for three years. And um, and then, you know, all these years later, uh, I always wanted to write about it, because I always thought that that was such a unique place to be. And time. And time. Yeah, you were at like the right place at the right time. I was at the right place at the right time, and I was yeah. also um, the story that I wrote about it. Of course, is called "Out of Place" because I was totally out of place. There was no reason that I should have ever been down there working because I didn't fit that mold. I wasn't part of that that crowd. I didn't grow up like that, right. let's say. And, and but I wanted, you know, I wanted to make some money, and that was the place to go make money. And so uh, they hired me, and um, and so when I go down there today and I look around at the produce yards and I see what's going on, I'm very encouraged by what I see in Pittsburgh. I'm like really psyched That's up cool. by that whole thing. And then yeah. when you think about Butler Street, oh, yeah. which which you're dr- driving down Butler Street and that whole area and how it's developed now and it's the crazy. beautiful restaurants and different things that are being developed all around there. Um, in Lawrenceville, mm. well, Lawrenceville was crap. It was it was a lousy. It was nothing, right. you know. Right? It was it was lousy streets and broken down homes. And everything. Now it's you know it's really coming back and it's humming. And the 40th Street, around the 40th Street Bridge, I think is, it's like really fantastic. So when I go to the produce yards and I look around at that, I um I think wow, you know it's it's not like I don't look at it from a nostalgic standpoint so much as kind of a pride that yeah. the city's going where it's that's going great. that's great to hear man and to feel the way i do because you hear some people feel the opposite way you know gentrification they're like ah 
these hipsters moving in here and making everything expensive, kicking the real people out. You have that point of view too. I think that's I think that's legitimate for certain things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that particular area, though, um, as opposed to uh, so much of a gentrification there, especially um, where the produce yards themselves were, mm -hmm. because that was truly a working man's enclave. That was that's where the trucks and the trains and the, everything came through there, and so. Um, it would either have just deteriorated away to nothing or they can bring it back and celebrate it, which is what they're doing in the article, which is a fabulous article. They put $65 million into that particular part of the strip and the way that they talk about how they're keeping certain things in there and keeping crates and the way they have the lights going through and the way that the terminal is being uh, uh, you know, developed. Yeah actually celebrates what That's I was cool. going through. That's very cool. And um, so it's not like I'm going to sit here and say, yeah, I'm like a big time Pittsburgh guy that, yeah. you know, I have uh, Steeler paraphernalia all over my house or whatever. Um, but I'm proud of the city. I'm proud where I grew up. I'm not a fanatic, mm -hmm. but I'm a true, um, I'm a true uh, outcrop of growing up in the East End, in Morningside. And going to Peabody High School, and going to Penn State, and just being a part of, and a fabric of this um, of this town, mm -hmm. and getting you know getting various jobs, and then traveling all all over the country, all over the country, seeing all kinds of different um, uh, cities and uh, traffic and history in different parts of the cities and really recognizing that uh, there's really something special about this place because when you talk to some Pittsburghers that have never moved away or really gone a whole lot of places, the richness of the city is ingrained in them, but they really, the number of things that they can compare it to are limited. Well, I, I haven't had that. I've had the opportunity to compare it to a lot of cities in a lot of different places. And um, it has its own unique charm, and it has its own character, as one would expect. But um, it's enriched in me and pulled out from me certain levels of nostalgia that I put to paper in everything that I have. It comes across very well. Thank you. And as a fellow Pittsburgher, I recognize that and appreciate that because... I am obviously I'm only 26, but uh, I have had the opportunity to travel a lot of places. I'm very fortunate, and I've seen a lot. And uh, I haven't seen anything that really makes me want to move away yet. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I do have a sense of pride about Pittsburgh that a lot of us, I think, have. I think that we can relate on that level for sure. Well, it's, uh, yeah, and I agree with you totally. And, and it is something at, at a guy your age. Yeah. But then people like you are what is going to really make Pittsburgh great right. and wonderful. And continue down the tradition because of so many things that are being developed here. Whether, yeah. Right? There's right. a lot of things going on in Pittsburgh, whether it's medically oriented or computer, um, it's uh, sports, whatever. There's great opportunities here in Pittsburgh. It's a great place to live, obviously, and it's relatively... Uh, from a cost perspective, right? Afford oh, yeah. Very affordable. Very affordable, yeah. Especially Crazy if you compare affordable. it to, you know, the obvious New York, Los Angeles type, Austin, Texas, you know. Yeah. It's very affordable, yeah. Yeah, which makes it stable as well in, a, in the cost of living here. So when I sat down, Zach, and I, it took me a lot of years till I finally started doing what I wanted to do because so, uh, so many people tell you, I'm going to write a book. I want to write a book someday. I want to do course, all these yeah. things. And uh, when I finally got to the point where I wanted to write a book, I wanted to write a book that would help people. And I set out in that direction, but I realized that, you know, I don't have a PhD, I don't go speak all over the place. And what could I really write about and put my heart and soul in and try and um, bring a character, not to myself so much, Although that's obviously in the stories themselves, because that's just the way that it is. It's about it's from your point about of view. Yeah. Um, that I knew that the best person to write about was me. Usually, in my experiences, yeah. right? But to pull out 
um, the different um, the different adventures that I've had, and anybody that feels like they have adventures and whatnot, they really should sit down and write about it. There's nothing more enriching, uh, and what you find out is that as you begin writing, your memory floods back. It's amazing what you remember. That's what I was going to ask you. How do you remember all this stuff? Because it seems like you give a pretty vivid, detailed descriptions just in our conversation, but also in your writing and stuff. Like you, uh, and you were young when all this happened. So, how how do what do you attribute your memory to? You, I think you just have a writer's mind, honestly. Um, thank you. Yeah. I I would say it's a gift. Okay. It is definitely a gift. Not clouded by too much drug and alcohol abuse. Problem. No. There you go. <laughs> it's a gift, and it's um, uh. And it never ceases to amaze me, but I would have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm 65 years old. And so um, when I began this journey, uh, I, I, had, I did have a lot of the benefit of the internet too. So there, was, okay. there, were, there were certain things that I remembered, but not maybe as clearly as I needed to. And I could go in and start searching around, looking for old pictures, looking for old news articles, to help me to remember um, if I, you know, forgot a particular era. Um, you know, in my novel, um, I write about the Iraq War. And, uh, you know, you, you have to go back and you kind of, you forget exactly the years or you forget um, when it started, when it ended, where I was. Uh, and so I, I knew um, this is the first Iraq war. I yeah. knew exactly where I was on the West Coast. I knew exactly. I knew, I knew exactly where I was driving. And I remembered all of that because it was such an impact on me at that particular point in time. But I'd have to, for example, go back to the internet and say, okay, I remember listening to that on CNN, but, but who was the announcer and what time did that happen? Sure. You know, and um, you know, what was exactly said uh, so you go back because you want to put that authentication in there and you fill in those blanks. And while you're filling in those blanks, your memory floods forward with all kinds of other things that you remember. And it's, it's probably one of the richest, most, um, you know, you could take Prevagen or some other kind of thing to help your memory. Sure. The best thing to help your memory is your memory, right. is exercising it and just kind of, if you can write about it, it will flood back and you will remember every aspect of it. And my one story here, which I'm hoping to share with your um, audience, is you know, even walking into a refrigerated cooler at four o'clock in the morning for sure. the very first time, I could be, I can be there in my mind right now mm -hmm. and remember exactly where I was standing while that guy was telling me right. what was going on down there. Yeah, it's a trigger. And, um, and you sit there, and you yourself are amazed that you remembered it. You know, and you remember exactly what somebody looked like. Right. Uh, it's just, it's the, the, the smell and the feel and the whole thing. Oh, it's such a gift. Yeah, songs do that. Places do that. Yes. People do that to you. That's yeah. yes. very, very cool. So what was the, you know, the day, the, do you remember the day when you're like, okay, I'm finally going to sit down, I'm going to start writing? Um, I'm going to say that that actually took place almost 20 years ago. Okay. Uh, and I was, um, I think it was in Sarasota, Florida. Okay. In a convention, in a, in a, uh, wasn't a convention per se, but it was a, a seminar. And I was sitting there daydreaming and I said, you know, it's time to do this. Okay. So I'd say so probably about 2002, 2003. I said, I'm, I'm going to sit down and start writing. And did you do that, or was phase one, like, research? You know, a lot of novelists say they spent, like, I know Stephen King spends, like, two years researching before he writes a book or whatever. Like Boy, that. would did I love to be able to do that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I probably have a little bit of a level of ADD that would not allow me, because if I was sure. doing something like that where I was trying to research it, I'd, lo I'd lose interest in it after a while. Okay. I might be all gung-ho in the beginning, and as I said a while back, I started off, I was going to write really a self-help book that was going to be 
directed in my corporate experiences and what it took to become an in, invaluable player in a corporate world and kind of pulling together those experiences. But as I started writing, I'd say by the time I got to page 30 or 40, it, the direction shifted and it became, wait a minute, this is what I was doing. That's what I was doing. This was what I was mm -hmm. doing. I really know me. I know what my experiences were. I know what the outcomes of those experiences were. I think it's interesting enough to put it to paper. And the beautiful thing is that can help people just as well because they can relate to you. They can put your themselves in your story, you know, versus here's what you do. Here's yep. your self-help book. So I think you are still helping people in your writing. I, I, um, the novel, which is still, you know, um, it's, it's been through its third, uh, editing now and it's pretty much getting ready to, to, um, head on out. And this Very is part of that process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, um, it's called Caught in the Middle, and it is about a, uh, a young man with very um, little experience in a particular business in a Fortune 500 company, locked in the middle of um, not really being able to make the decisions, um, being responsible for certain decisions that being carried out, but lost because so many people that are serving in middle management capacities. And at that point, I was still not quite in the middle management capacities. But by the end of the book, I'm more than in the middle. I'm in the upper level of the middle management, but still kind of buried away. You know, it's not, those are not, those are not the people. Mm -hmm. Those are the, those are the real workers, the strategists. Um, and they're, they're kind of muted by people on top of them who, um, tend to, to get the limelight mm -hmm. and are in certain classes. And in the novel, it talks about that there are classes within a corporation and there are programs that are set up for um, upper level management uh, tracks. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get on that track and you are identified in a very early stage of being on that track, if you don't get on that track, the likelihood of your getting on that track is very minimal and um, so you're gonna work and you're gonna you're gonna have a good career and you get paid decently very well but your ability to get to that upper echelon where the where the real opportunities are where the real money is where the real um, uh, I don't know what you call it maybe um, the level of of admiration that is expressed towards you. Uh, you know these guys, they know it all and they're so brilliant and they do this and they do that. Well, they've got cadre and armies of people uh, um, that are working with them that are providing guidance or um, making things happen that open up opportunities. It's not to diminish that these guys are not smart and right. strategists and whatever. Like any great person has an yeah, army people. behind them. Yeah. And if they can identify those people, if they can pick them out and say, this is the guy I want on my team, or this is the girl I want on my team, or woman, um, then that's a skill. And there are people in my book that you take a look at, and they'll go, you know, as you read this book, this novel, you will see that they, they can pick them out. They know. Mm -hmm. They see the um, traits that, and you and I talked about this the last time we got together. They, they can look at you, they spend 15, 20 minutes with you, and they're, they're in, the, in the back of their minds, they're already, whether they're consciously doing it or not, they're already putting you in certain pegs. And the really good ones, in 15, 20 minutes, um, they won't scope out your whole career, but they know this person should move to this next phase of an interview or should be considered for this kind of a job, just basis their experiences. And when you and I sat down and talked in the Galleria before we did this, yeah. I said to you, I'm going down, I'm meeting with one of the executives, former executive that right. I worked with. And and he and I talked about that after you and I did. Cool. We talked about that fascinating. At, at, at lunch. We were at lunch for you know an hour and a half. This is a guy that went on to become a CEO of a big corporation in Ohio. 
And, and he was talking about that. Yeah, you know, you, you base it on maybe he had 25, 30 people reporting to him and he had come up the ranks and he, and he could see certain people fit in you know, this slot, that slot, this slot. He could tell pretty quickly where they, where they fell out. So um, that's what that book is about and that's that novel. And so while I was working on the novel, I was toying around and working on short stories and working also, uh, I did um, book reviews for uh, not a, for about a year for the, um, uh, for the Pittsburgh, um, what's it called? Um, the, the newspaper, the business uh, newspaper in Pittsburgh. I wrote, I wrote reviews of business books uh, oh, really? I like didn't know that. It, yeah, I, I did that too. That's great. And so throughout that whole process, uh, Business Times, Pittsburgh okay. Business Times, uh, by doing that, great you're exercise. just sharpening, sharpening, sharpening your skills. Yeah. You know, to I write music, a lot of music reviews. So same thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, and get, you just get better at it mm -hmm. and and enjoy it. Yeah. And um, and so when it's sharpening your sword, like when, the short stories do too, I'm sure. Yeah, and so when I listened to you and your interview with Josh, I mean, I just was like chomping at the bit to sit with you. I'm excited, man. I'm glad. I'm chomping at the bit to sit with you. I'm glad we're finally doing this, man. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're in, man. So we're in. It's an honor. No, I, I'm I'm flattered to be able to do it, and I brought some stories with me today. Please, yeah, please share. And um, and so we can we can we certainly can. Pick from one of the two. One obviously is much shorter than the other one. That's fine. That's wherever, whatever you like. I think we should just go in sequential order. You know, we'll probably, okay, do, well, we'll probably have a part two of this podcast. You know, I hope so. Or three, whatever I, works. Man. I, I listen. Yeah. I hope so. Um, I, I'm fascinated. So, so I, I, I would love to share with your audience this story about Pittsburgh, and yeah. and about um, strap in, ladies and gentlemen. It's a good one. And and it's it's called out of place. And I think um, the audience will, will understand why. I felt the grip of his hand around the back of my thigh, followed by a bellowing laugh. He'll do, Sullivan said to the man who had walked me over and released me to his charge. What the hell have I signed up, I thought. Signed up for, I thought. It was 4 a.m., yet the building in which we stood was flooded with movement. Men using hand jacks maneuvered pallets of fruit and vegetables into position on the main floor. A forklift driver raced up a portable ramp into the back of a semi-truck. Moments later, he emerged with a load of wooden crates hanging off the front of the vehicle. While the rest of the city slept, the day was just beginning at Mai's Jet Air Sales, a produce wholesaler on the corner of 20th and Penn Avenue in Pittsburgh's Strip District. Everyone calls me Sully except the bosses. To them, I'm Sullivan. First name is Regis. Regis Sullivan. Been working Mai's for 15 years but I've worked in the produce yard since I was about your age. The bosses are good people. The money ain't bad either. Everyone here works hard. No messing around. Do your job and you'll be fine. Just don't think about making this your career, college kid. Sully laughed once more, and I spied the gap in his teeth where a canine tooth had once been. He extended his hand to shake mine. His vice-like grip matched with the stone-solid physique. I'm Frank, I replied. Then Sully reached into his pocket and pulled out a five-by-seven yellow slip of paper. It was lined from top to bottom. There were notations with numbers to the left of them. First thing you need to know, kid, is that almost everything we do here is on these yellow tickets. He pointed his finger toward the front office. The bosses fill them out and hang them on the outside of the wall. We'll pull them, fill the order, and when we're done, we place them in that wooden box over there. Whoever is free grabs the next one down. Some orders are simple, like this one. Others could have a lot of things on them. This order is yours now. Once we complete it, you'll put your initials at the top and drop it in the box. Understand so far? I nodded affirmatively. Good, come with me, he said, as he reflexively reached for a red dolly that stood by his side. Moments later, we were standing in front of a giant steel door. Sully pushed the dolly to one side of it and pulled on the door's handle. As it swung open, cold air rushed forward to meet the morning summer heat. Instantly, a cloud of condensate appeared. Sully grabbed for the dolly. We walked inside the refrigerated room and closed the door. 
Within seconds, I was shivering. We keep most of the vegetables in here until 3 a.m. Then we pull them out onto the showroom floor so we can fill the orders quickly. Bags of carrots stay in here all the time. 50-pound loose to the left, 48-pound two-pounders to the right. The 48 one-pounders are along the back wall. Look at your ticket and tell me what it says. We need one bag of 50s and two bags of 48 by twos. But what about the tomatoes listed here, I said. Tomatoes are downstairs. We'll deal with them next. For now, go ahead and gather the carrots and put them on this dolly. I shadowed Sully like a puppy. He took pride in being a mentor to a college kid. The only other college laborer during working that summer was Mike. He was here because his sister was married to one of the owner's sons. I had no safety net. If I was going to survive, if I was going to reap the benefits of this well-paying summer job, I would have to earn my way, along with the respective co-workers, with whom for now I shared no common experience. For the next four hours, we picked produce for pre-orders. Twice we rode the freight elevator to the basement for tomatoes. Like so many of the products the company carried, the base configurations and the varieties of vegetables were mind-boggling. Roma, Big Boy, Plum, Beefsteak, 24 by 1, 12-packs, 6-packs, baskets, you name it. They were there. To make matters more complicated, they were branded under cockamamie names like Little Margie's Best or Grapevine Classic. Some products were easy to get to. Others were buried, requiring us to get a hand jack and move pallets out of the way to get what we needed. I struggled to catalog as much as my memory could handle. Whenever I looked confused, Sully would step in and take control. He wasn't smug. He had confidence, confidence in what he knew and exercised his knowledge without being pompous. Outside of this place, we held little in common. He did not need to gain from what I knew. Quite the opposite was true of me. I was completely dependent upon him to be my guide. Throughout the morning, men wearing button-down shirts and dress pants arrived. Each was quickly greeted by one of the owner's sons or a much older man everyone referred to as Ryer. Sully, who are those men, I asked. They're buyers, big buyers. That guy over there, he's from Giant Eagle. The other one in the white shirt, it's, he's from Monteverdi's Produce. I watched as these men selected produce from a massive display of products covering everything from asparagus to zucchini that were thoughtfully arranged right outside of the main office. The buyers pointed frequently, appeared to be asking lots of questions. Then they'd make their choices. The Mize boys or Ryer would quote a price, mark down the buyer's selection on a series of yellow tickets, and put them up on the slots to be filled. And the gray hair guy? Who's he? That's Jimmy Ryer. He's Mr. Mize's right-hand man. Has as much authority as the boys, though. He isn't related. Just do whatever he tells you. Ryer's a good guy. Got produce in his blood. Throughout the night, box trucks randomly arrived at the loading docks alongside the building. Men jumped out of their cabs, walked over to the office, and began the ritual of picking produce and placing their orders. Once their tickets were completed, they returned to their trucks and waited until one of the workers pulled the ticket and began filling the order. Everyone seemed to know each other. Sully and I filled several trucks that morning. Who's the new kid, Sully? He's a college kid named Frank. Don't know his last name. Don't really matter, does it? He has a strong back and he wants to work. So far as I can tell, he's a decent guy. Just don't run him off, Sully said, laughing once more. From time to time, a driver would tip us. A buck here, 50 cents there. One guy gave me a quarter. There wasn't any sharing. Whatever you got in tips, you kept. As the darkness of night faded and more trucks began to appear, before long, the loading dock was filled with them, and the street leading up to it was jammed with box trucks, box trucks waiting their turn to find an open slot. Men were hollering at each other. Periodically, a level of impatience showed itself in the sound of a blaring horn. The atmosphere inside the building was equally frenetic, with men pushing dollies, hauling pallets, loading trucks, lifting forklifts, driving forklifts, and grabbing new tickets or depositing ones they had just completed. I worked right alongside Sully, hoisting crates, boxes, and bags into the back of trucks. In the middle of it all, George and Timmy Mize and Jimmy Ryer stood with their order books in hand, filling out tickets, ringmasters in the middle of a circus. By 8.30 a.m., the chaos was over. Many trucks continued to arrive, but the flow of activity was less hectic. 
That's when I got my first order that called for four flats of Driscoll strawberries. Berries are across the street. I got a few things to take care of right now. So I'll have Mike take you over there. He goes to pit. You two are like peas in a pod, he said, then yelled, Mike, get over here. What's up, Sully? This is Frank. He's new. Take him to the very room, introduce him to Chico, and pick up the flats for this order. I've got to go myself and see a man about a horse. Sure, Sully, no problem. Mike and I shook hands and began small talk. As it turned out, we were both the same age. He had started just a few weeks before me, so he understood what it was like plunging into this new world, not to mention unusual culture. Within minutes, we were sharing our amusement for the situations we found ourselves in. Well, you may think you've seen a lot, he said, adding, wait until you get over to the berry room. Why, what's up with that? Oh no, I'm not gonna spoil that experience for you. You'll see for yourself. I followed Mike out the door. Moments later, we were standing inside a dingy, stark building, about 10 feet wide and 20 feet deep. deep. It had one window to the side with bars on it. Toward the back, there was a small red table, above which a spotlight dangling at the end of an electrical cord ran down from the ceiling. A man wearing a threadbare winter coat stood by the table. He was intently studying a flat of strawberries. As we got closer, he took a pointy stick and stabbed at a berry. With a flick of his wrist, he flung it into a steel garbage can beside him. The light, sweet smell of strawberry hung in the air. It was the only redeeming feature of this dungeon-like atmosphere in which this man Chico worked. As we approached him, he looked up at us. His features reminded me of Wile E. Coyote from the Roadrunner cartoon series. Ha! Huh. Look what the cat drug in, Sully said in a crusty voice. Who's your friend? I'm Frank, I replied. You don't look like a Frank. More like an Igor. Yeah, that's your name now. Iggy, for short. I didn't even know this man. Yet he thought nothing of changing my name. It frightened me and humored me at the same time. More ironic was the fact that he went by Chico, a Latin American name meaning small boy in Spanish. This man was anything but. He was tall, lean, Caucasian, and Polish. He handed Chico, Mike handed Chico the yellow ticket. He took it and held it close to his face. Next, he pulled a clipboard from under the table and pour, put four tick marks on it. Then he turned to open the door to the refrigerated room behind him. We all walked inside. This room was smaller than the one that Sully and I were in earlier that morning. Only two products were stored inside, strawberries and raspberries. Their sweet aromas rushed through my nose. Now look, Sully, or Chico said, directing his words at me. You can eat all the strawberries you want. Eat them until you're sick to your stomach. Once you do that, you won't want them anymore. That's fine with me. But if you so much as touch those raspberries, I'll cut your fingers off. Raspberries are like gold around here. Got it? Yeah, I got it. Mike and I took two flats and we're on our way. See what I mean, Mike said? That guy's losing his mind in there. I asked him once how he told time, given that he doesn't wear a watch and there isn't a clock on the wall. Know what he said? He can tell the time by the shadows cast on the floor from the window. No kidding, I tested him once and damned if he wasn't within five minutes. It's his sundial. Sonny was Sully was standing at the front of the building talking with Ryer when we got back. Once he was through, he made no effort to return to his mentoring duties. It became clear that he was handing me off to Mike. It was a good move. Mike had the benefit of already working at Mize for three weeks. He could empathize with me. The two of us became fast friends. Immediately, we began working in tandem. The pace of activity was dramatically slowing. Box trucks now sporadically pulled up to the loading dock. As certain ones arrived, I watched some of my coworkers skulk into the corners or quickly move forward to grab the tickets from the driver. Mike explained that certain drivers were pains in the ass and others ones were big tippers. At nine o'clock, a turquoise-colored Cadillac pulled into the company parking lot. A large man dressed in a white shirt tie and tie emerged from behind the driver's seat. As he headed toward the side entrance of the building, I noticed that he walked on the balls of his feet, almost as though he was tiptoeing. Yet the look on his bulldog face communicated anything but gentleness. Mike leaned in towards me and whispered, that's Stan Mize, the owner. Don't freak out when you see him at first. 
He had to have a tracheotomy several years ago. Talks through a hole in his neck. All in all, a really good guy. He's the heart and soul of the company. There was very little talking. Most eyes were riveted on Mr. Mize. Despite the fact that we were manual laborers working in the middle of a Pittsburgh produce yard, a sense of decorum evolved as he got closer. It was apparent to me that this man was no ordinary boss in the eyes of the men who worked for him. There was a reverence and awe in his body language. Once inside, Stan's two sons walked over to greet him. Then he and Ryer talked. After that, Stan peered around the facility and waved to a few guys before heading upstairs to the main office. By 10 a.m., uh, everyone was involved in packing up displays or moving pallets from the main floor. It was cleanup time. The workday was coming to a close. Partial pallets of produce were combined to make full loads. Hand jacks appeared, were plunged underneath wooden pallets of goods and then pulled or pushed to their appointed spots within one of the coolers. The freight elevator continuously ran up and down, crammed with crates and boxes. Men swept the floors, then hosed them down, while others closed the accordion-style doors that ran the perimeter of the building. If put to music, it would have fit perfectly with Beethoven's Fifth, fifth Symphony. Everything was neatly in place by 11 a.m. That's when everyone left, except for me. I still had an hour to go. Spotting Sully, I stopped him just before he got out the door. What am I supposed to do now? Beats me. There isn't anything left for you to work about, work on. I guess just go over to the office and cool down. See you in the morning, college kid, he said as he walked through the front door, closing it behind him. The building took on an eerie quiet. In the distance, I could hear a huge fan left on to help dry the concrete floors that had been washed down. Occasionally, the faint sound of a phone ringing came from the upstairs office. Other than that, I was alone with nothing to do. I followed Sully's instructions and went into the, day into the office and sat for the next 45 minutes reflecting on what had just taken place over the last seven hours. This would be my summer. Well done, sir. Thank you. Well written, well voiced. Thank you. Yeah, that was great, man. Yeah, cool. so that was uh, the beginning of your three-year career in the produce yard, yes, correct? Yes, three-year career. And, and was that an accurate representation of how the next three years would play out on a day-to-day -day basis? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it was. And, and in fact, I, of course, became uh, ingrained in the whole thing. Of course, yeah. Made I friends ended up running, write, writing company songs with okay. that they would sing. Nice. <laughs> really? And uh, yes. And I became very, very close with Stan Mize over those three years. Very close. Did you become in place by the end of it? Or I was still out of place. I was out of place, but in place. I understand exactly what yeah, you mean. I did stand out there, and it was uh, it was quite quite a great uh, opportunity. And of course, got other s stories that I'd be happy to share with your yeah man your uh, audience. Of course, uh, if we do more of these, I'm we happy will. to do it. 100% we will. Including it, you. It is. Whatever is best for you. So if you want to share another one, you're more than welcome to. If you want to talk about that one for a while, whatever you feel. Well, I, I, want to, I, I think, I, you know, I think I, I've, I've certainly shared with your audience yeah. a lot of stuff today. For sure. Fantastic. And, and uh, it's up to you, but I, I'd, I'd really love to come back and maybe share some others. And uh, You're welcome anytime, sir. You know, and as we, we talked before, I'd, um, I'd really... I would really love to share the corporate side because we're looking. Oh, we're me looking. Too. I'm yeah, very I mean, fascinated with that. I'm in the middle of that, but I'm like halfway through that. Are you really? Yes, I am. I am very um, honored best. that oh, you're man. doing that because it's a big reading. book. It is a big book, but it goes quick, and you know you can kind of skim through a little bit of it. You know, yes. especially on the computer and stuff. Yes. which what I have, and it's uh, it's fascinating. Yeah, I have a lot of questions to ask you about the marketing side of things and. Yes. That whole thing and, you know, becoming a leader in your own right and stuff is very interesting to me. I got to tell you, Zach, I, it, um, it's funny that you said about it, how it was speeding up because mm -hmm. I, I gave the book to my son, who's 24, and, uh, and he was telling me that, you know, at the beginning of the book, as he was reading it, the, the book, he was, you know, it's laying the groundwork and you're kind of, for me, it was learning the ropes. And he felt that as it was going, you know, it was speeding up and speeding up. And when he got to the, when he was getting to like the last 200 pages, he sure. said that it was just like, I'm just zipping right through. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to finishing it for sure. 
Yeah, I, I just, what a great opportunity this is. And um, thanks for letting me share today's story. You're very welcome. Dude. And there's, you know, as you know, you know, your audience doesn't know, but you know. I know everything. You know everything because you've seen the I've latest. S- I've seen them all. This is, that's a great one. We'll have to wait till next time for that one. Yeah, but we'll do the next one when I come back. That's cool. Man. Yeah, and then we can, you know, we can share a lot of things and there's just a lot of things in between and there are a lot of stories yet to be written, so. I do have a few questions about that, if you don't mind answering no. just a few. Sure. Just a few, well, more or less just things to talk about. I took some notes. So Sully, you know, was he, was it fair to say that he was a pretty big mentor for you? Yes. In your life? Yes. So did something, you know, as mundane sounding as a job at a produce yard, did that teach you how to behave in like a corporate environment? Did he have that kind of inspiration or kind of knowledge that shared shared with you? Or is it because I feel like, you know, you can get good, a good job after school and all that stuff. You know, you can go to college and go to high school and you're in this corporate position. I feel like having a ment like a true, like bare bones mentor like that and like that sort of work environment has an effect on you. That's you can't really duplicate in school or anything like that. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think that Sully as a person, um, I just had tremendous respect for him. Right. Uh, and he was childlike in some ways, you know, because he could do some crazy things here and there. But he cherished his job. He had a great love for his family, mm-hmm. which he shared along the way uh, with me. And um, he, uh, he, re-ins- he instilled, he reinstilled the idea of uh, the idea of putting in a full day, like you're you're, right. you're there to work, right? Someone's paying you to work, and um, you should be tired by the end of it, kind of thing. Y- yeah, you, you know, he took pride in what he did. So in that respect, yeah, you know, I could I could tell you, yeah, from a corporate standpoint, the many things that I've done and some that you're reading about, um, tremendous uh, uplifting feelings that I've gotten from those things that that. Uh, were incredible um, but a good day's work it left me with almost an equally yeah it was ethics and dynamics and um, pride in what you, what you were doing so he had as much pride in filling an order correctly and packing a truck properly and stacking a, a pallet you know I deal with pallets every day now I've dealt with pallets for 34 years. And I'll tell you something else about that story. I know you talk about Sully, but I would tell you one thing. Oh, yeah. That flashes through my mind um, when I think about Sully, particularly. We went into the cooler the first night. He showed me the the carrots, right? And uh, the carrots came from a company on the West Coast called Bolt House. I met the Bolt House people. Okay. In my job. Later in life, like in like your maybe six years ago. Oh wow! So on the West Coast, definitely later in life. Okay. In a uh, what they call they they have like uh, in business, it's sort of a form of speed dating, where you go and different companies will sign up to um, meet different kinds of suppliers. Oh okay. And they meet with you for like a half an hour, sure. and you have a suite, and they come in. Uh, this was in the uh, in the in the um, agricultural area. So whether it was in the harvesting or post-harvest uh, packing uh, facilities, or wherever, processing, they could come from all different places. Dole, uh, for example, or, or um, you know, Heinz, any, any, any number of these places could show up. Fantastic. And Bolt House comes in, can you imagine? Right. And I'm sitting there, and they come in, and they sit down. And I looked at these guys, and I said, I'm going to tell you something. I hate you guys. <laughs> I hate you guys, yeah. and 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 a lot of these guys are like, well, you know, they don't even know me. Yeah, and they said, well, you hate us. I said yes, because I worked in the produce yards and I moved your carrots and they were heavy as hell. And instantly, these guys are bonded with me like because they off, know yeah. I'm from the, you know, like they always right. say. Well, the guy started out sweeping the floors. Well, that's basically what I did. I started out right. loading trucks with their carrots. Right. And so instantly, you know, they want to know where was I in Pittsburgh and who was I working for and what was what. And if 
formed a really strong bond. So um, crazy, funniest things, you know, they say s- take six s- points of separation. There's mm-hmm. a great example of a six points of separation. That's, yeah, it's a great way to bond. And the Driscollberry you know, guys, know. the Driscollberry guys are everywhere. You go, right. you can't go into any of the stores around here and not see Driscollberries. They're the only brand I can re- name off the top of my head, to be honest. I dealt with Driscollberries till I was sick of them. Who knew, man? Who knew you, that would carry you so far in a career? That's yeah. pretty funny. That's interesting. All these guys you know? down there that I worked with were fabulous individuals. They were hardworking characters. It sounds like they kind of loved what they do. Would you say they loved what they did or at least at the very least took great pride in what they did? They took pride in what they did. Which is super important. I feel like that's lost on a lot of people. Avis and driving a, a forklift? Yeah. That was the status symbol there. I bet. Yeah. I bet they it took me it three years to drive a forklift down there. It's like getting the Rolls Royce. <laughs> using the Rolls Royce, right? It was like using the Rolls Royce. You know, only only Donnie for the most part drove the, drove the, uh, the forklift. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. You should. I think that's also a valuable lesson from that. Be the best at what you do, no matter what it is, and take pride in it. You know, a lot of people be like, "Oh, I gotta work overnight and unload fucking berries, and that blows." But (laughs) you know, I feel like they were like the creme de la creme of unloading berries and selling it. The other thing about them, Zach, is that they um, they really loved their families, and they wanted the best for their kids. Right. And many of these kids, um, sometimes uh, a, a driver would show up in, uh, in a semi and he'd have his kid with him. Yeah. And that kid might go to Shadyside Academy. He yeah. was a truck driver, but his kid was going to Shadyside Academy. It was valuable to get both sides of that education. You know, it's important to have both. Yeah, and that was the thing. So the, the kid maybe worked in the summertime. In fact, I was uh, on Pollock Avenue in State College, Penn State. Walking down the street, and one of those damn semi don't you know one of those semis is coming down the street to deliver produce up at Penn State and State College. Okay. And I looked up, and it was a, a company's name was Houtsdale, and the driver was coming down, and I saw him, and I waved to him. And he stopped that semi on Pollock Avenue, and he waved me up into that truck. Nice. So I was actually on Penn State's campus in a semi <laughs> he drove me to my dorm no way in a semi awesome there you go that's Again. Pittsburgh for you that's Pittsburgh right there thanks Frank yeah this has been great man okay let's do some part, more part two coming soon yeah whenever you like we're there if you got the time thanks everybody thank you yeah that was awesome honestly whenever you can I'm in man okay so